The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to financialsense.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. China's Evergrande, the slow-motion collapse of the world's most indebted property developer, has just entered a new stage. The embattled company has filed for bankruptcy protection in the U.S., while its restructuring plans are being carried out elsewhere. Meanwhile, signs of trouble are spreading across China's broader property market, with large housing units remaining unfinished and buyers who pay deposits skipping payments as a result. Another major developer, Country Garden, has warned that it may not be able to make interest payments on its bonds as it struggles to find the cash to finish projects around the country. You know, we really are seeing the stress of middle-income families as they continue to deal with the compounding effects of inflation. While it's true that inflation is slowing, we're still seeing, you know, prices are up. They've not gone down. They're just going up more slowly. And when you have a multi-year compounding effect of that, maybe 3% this year on top of 7 or 8% last year, you've got middle-income families dealing with double-digit growth in prices. And there's just not enough money at the end of the month. And so what we see is they're bridging the gap with the use of their credit cards. We're seeing usage increase, balances increase, all at unfriendly interest rates. And so it's becoming a real challenge for these families. Leaders of countries that account for more than a quarter of the global economy are set to meet in South Africa. Up for discussion at the BRICS Summit, starting on August 22nd, how to turn this loose club of nations into a geopolitical force capable of challenging the West's dominance in global affairs. Few details have emerged about what BRICS leaders plan to discuss. However, expansion is expected to be high on the agenda. BRICS nations are keen to project themselves as alternative development partners to the West. The bloc's new development bank wants to de-dollarize finance and offer an alternative to the IMF and the World Bank. South African officials say talk of a BRICS currency, mooted by Brazil earlier this year as an alternative to dollar dependence, is off the table. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, it was not a good week for the major indexes this week, most of them finishing in negative territory. The real big story this week was the jump in bond yields. We're talking about 30-year Treasury bonds now approaching 4.5%, and the 10-year note is at 4.3% as yields begin to climb. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Paplavin. Welcome to the Financial Sense News Hour. Coming up, this is a special edition of the program. We have several guests that I'll be interviewing today, starting out with Tom McClellan, Tom is still sticking to his original call that we would have a short summer rally and that a bigger downturn would be coming in the fall. But coming out of that, that would be a good time to make some long-term investments. Tom is on the show today, and he is sticking to that call that he made on the program back in May. Following Tom will be Robert Rapier. He agrees with us. Oil prices are heading higher. We could be talking about 90 to to $100 oil by the end of the year, we're already above 80, so look for inflation to pick up. And finally, an interview with Robert Kiyosaki, the author of Rich Dad, Poor Dad, as we take a look at why you want to own hard assets this decade as inflation heats up like never before. If you look at GB per capita 
in places like Italy and Spain, it is lower than it was before the great financial crisis of 2008. If you look at inflation-adjusted wages in places like France and Germany, they've practically gone nowhere. If you look at the cumulative GDP of the Eurozone on an inflation-adjusted basis, the U.S. is now double right now. And I originally looked at this and I thought, oh, it must just be currency. The dollar's been strong and the euro's been fairly weak. And so as a result, maybe all these gains in the U.S. GDP and GDP per capita is really just a matter of a currency translation. But the euro is not that much lower than it was in 2015 when the acceleration of this really kicked off in terms of the divergence of living standards between the U.S. and Europe. So there's something more structural going on. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to FinancialSense.com and hit the subscribe button. Hi, I'm Jim Poplava. I started Financial Sense in 1985 to give clients a boutique, personal investment experience that's hard to get at a large company. For three decades, my company has been helping families build, manage, and protect their wealth through tailored financial planning and investment management. If you are looking to make financial sense of a complex world, give our office a call at 888-486-3939 to speak with one of our advisors today and let us help you plan your future. Well, so far, it's been a good year for investors in stocks. Major indexes are up, even though they've been driven by a handful of stocks, nonetheless, positive returns on investors. Joining us on the program from MC Oscillator is Tom McKellen. Tom, I want to go back to the last time we had you on the show You were predicting, I think it was somewhere around May, that we were about to embark on a rally, but this would be a short-term tradable rally. A more significant downturn would be likely maybe August and September, and coming out of that, that would be an investment rally opportunity. Do you still hold to those views? I do. And this year, at least since May, anyhow, we've been very nicely following the annual seasonal pattern for how stocks behave. We weren't following the annual seasonal pattern at the beginning of the year when especially the Dow and and to some extent the S&P were chopping sideways. Normally from November to about May, you expect the stock market to go up. The NASDAQ did, led by the Magnificent Seven, but the rest of the market didn't join in that. But they did get on board for the push to the second seasonal high, which most people don't talk about, which is in July. And that unfolded right on schedule. Now we're in August. We're seeing uh, a little bit of correction so far, down about 4%, uh, relatively quiet. Uh, as we are suffering from some of those typical summer doldrums, but that we're in the weak seasonal period that comes every year and especially comes during the third year of a presidential term where we find ourselves right now. That weakness is due to last until October, and that's the investing bottom as opposed to a trading bottom that I was talking about before and which I think is still the applicable case for now. Tom, one of the things we saw last year, and I think this is part of the way the markets function now with massive amounts flowing into index funds. So we saw last year the the big tech stock got hit really hard because they make up the majority market capitalization of the S&P. Likewise, as money shifted back into these index funds this year, you've got these stocks outperforming the Magnificent Seven. 
Well, what you're referring to, you're dancing around my number one principle of, of how the market works. My number one, what I call the, the biggest fundamental factor that matters for the overall stock market. And when it comes to the overall stock market, you can throw out earnings and book value and dividend yield. The only two factors that matter to the overall stock market is number one, how much money is there? And number two, how much does that money want to be invested? So as those two things change, you move the stock market. The Fed is doing a lot of work on factor number one, how much money is there? And uh, we've been seeing the money supply actually shrinking. When it was in expanding greatly, that was great for stocks back in 2021 and early 2022. Uh, but it's not so great now that uh, money supply is shrinking. So there's not a lot of extra money floating around without a mission to, to, to attend to. And so th what the seasonality applies to that I was referring to earlier in the in the interview that applies to how people feel like investing and it's a well-established seasonal trend that people feel like putting their money to work starting from October to November and lasting to about May to July and then in late summer into fall as the length of the daylight starts to get shorter in the northern hemisphere people feel a sense of needing to pull in and they start selling stocks and and even though the money supply may not be doing anything different people's feelings about it change. And so that's why we get the normal seasonal pattern. And it's playing out pretty much uh, like it's supposed to. We're in corrective mode now. We've got a little bit of an oversold condition here in the middle of August, uh, probably not an oversold enough yet to mark uh, a bounceable bottom. I, I'm looking for that to happen next week. Today is the 17th of August and, and we have a nice oversold condition, but I think it's going to stay oversold for a few more days before we start to get a real bounce. Okay, so looking at a chart in the S&P on the day you and I are speaking, which is a Thursday, we're at roughly 43.93. We had a low last October that got into below 3,600. How far or how low do you think this could get before we hit a bottom? You've hit upon one of the great problems that I have never found a great solution for. Uh, and it's a normal human tendency that anytime we're investing, we want to know what's going to happen to our money, how far is it going to go? And the how far question is really tough to answer given the, the tools that we have, because how far prices can go will often depend on things that haven't happened yet. Who invades another country? What Middle Eastern oil producing country decides to cut off oil? Uh, who who decides to resign from Congress and change the political balance? Who's going to, what's happening in the White House? All those things affect the how far, but the timing of the events is a lot more well-determined in advance. And so what I try to do is I try to get every bit of every trend either, in either direction. And I try not to worry about how far it's going to go because I can't make more out of a trend than the trend is going to give me. I can only make as much money as the trend goes. Uh, so I try to spend my time getting the direction right. All right. I want to shift gears now. You sent us a number of charts, which for our listeners, we're going to post on the website. The first of these is the McClellan Oscillator, uh, which has been going down. What is that telling you? Well, that's the indicator that my parents developed back in 1969. Uh, my dad is still alive and doing great. He's 89 years old and still working with me every day. My mom passed away 20 years ago, but they were the ones who first thought to look at the difference between two moving averages, something that Gerald Appel later took up as a study. In this case, it was the difference between two moving averages of the daily difference between advances and declines. And that indicator came to be known as the McClellan Oscillator. And it looks at, at what is the acceleration taking place in the breadth data. What we saw earlier, uh, 
this summer and back in July, we we saw a divergent, a bearish divergence between higher prices going higher and the McClellan oscillator making lower tops. And that's a setup, uh, not a signal, but a setup for a, a bigger decline. And we're seeing that now we have a nice oversold McClellan oscillator down to minus 258 as of Wednesday, the 16th of August, which is sure enough oversold that doesn't necessarily have to mean that the bottom is here though because it can stay oversold like this for a while and indeed i'm expecting this it to stay oversold in the next week uh, and the second chart i sent you echoes that point it's a chart of the cboe put call volume ratio that's the ratio of how many puts for traded betting uh, traders betting on the on prices going down versus how many call options betting on stock prices going up and when that goes up to a high level meaning a lot more puts being traded than calls that's a pretty good marker of a bottom. So we've got two great oversold indications saying, hey, this this looks and smells an awful lot like a nice oversold bottom. And then the third chart, which is the CBO volatility index or the VIX, let's talk about it. It's been uh, moving up. They got, well, it's been moving in the low range for through most of summer in the 12 to 14 range. Now it's above 16. Yeah, and that's the point. You know, we've got nice oversold condition in those first two charts, arguing that we're at a great short-term bottom. But the VIX has been really tepid. It's only in the 16s, well, up above 17 today as we're talking about this. But that's still a comparatively low value compared to the the values of the last year or so. So if this were if this really were a nice juicy oversold condition, I would expect a lot more reaction in the VIX uh, than we have seen thus far. And so that leaves uh, that as an undone task and room for for more work by the market to scare more people away and and get them frightened and fleeing for the hills and thinking the sky really is falling. And once we see that show up in the VIX, then I think that we'll have a better bottom, which I believe is going to come in a few more days sometime next week. Okay, so that would be what, a short-term bounce back before we hit the lows? Right, a counter-trend rally within the normal seasonal rough period but you know when you even in a downtrend you can make money buying really oversold values uh, and, and conditions in the market because uh, because snapback rallies can be quite powerful if you can catch them they're really tough to catch and you know you know the old saying about falling knives but when you when you get a lot of evidence compiling for you to say hey this is a really juicy opportunity then you can be a little bit more courageous and try to look for those opportunities and then the final chart you sent us is the NASDAQ 100, which has been in a downtrend. So these seven stocks have been pulling back lately. Tell us a little bit more about this. Well, what's remarkable about it, that pullback in the NASDAQ 100 is that it is not yet producing a high volume day in the ETF that trades as QQQ, which is a ETF, one, of the, one of the biggest ETFs that trades uh, holding the stocks that make up the NASDAQ 100 index. What's fascinating about that ETF, QQQ, is that high volume days in QQQ mark short-term bottoms. And low volume days can mark tops, although you got to be careful with days like July 3rd when trading was really light or the day after Thanksgiving, which is a three hour trading session and trading is light. So you got to be really careful if you're looking at a low volume day, not to get fooled by, by any holiday related activities. But high volume days are great markers of bottoms and we're not yet seeing one of those. So that fits with the message of the VIX that, hey, well, yeah, the correction that we're in right now has some more work to do on hearts and minds to get people feeling fearful. When people are fearful, they tend to trade QQQ a lot more, either because it has greater liquidity than their individual stocks 
or some portfolio managers use QQQ as a vehicle to short. Uh, they, they'll sell short shares of QQQ to hedge the risk in their rest of their portfolio, and that helps to drive up the volume. Uh, but whatever the cause, high volume days are pretty reliably associated with short-term bottoms in the stock market overall and in the NASDAQ 100. And we're just not seeing one of those yet, which is another sign that yes, the market is oversold in, in a short-term basis, but we haven't had a real good sentiment washout to get the final work done for a bottom. So that's why I'm expecting a few more days of work on that process, and we could get that perhaps next week. And that would be just a tradable low because the real seasonal low is not really due till late September to early October this year. I want to move on to another market, and that's treasury yields. We're seeing treasury yields 30 years over 4.3. You've got uh, the 10-year well over 4%. They've been rising. What's your take on interest rates? How high did they go, or are we hitting a top here? They're going a lot higher this year, but not right away. Um, treasury bond prices have gotten oversold. Yields have gotten over, gone up a little bit too much here in the middle of August. And uh, I expect a reversal of that just for the rest of this month. So the drop in bond prices should take a rest break and they should rebound a little bit, meaning the top in, in bond yields should pull back a little bit as we go into later August and people will feel a sigh of relief. And then Starting in late August, we're going to see a much more significant trend than what we've already seen with bond yields going a lot higher by early December. At, when we get to early December, there's going to be a lot of wailing and gnashing of teeth about inflation and the economy and interest rates are horrible and and people who are in CDs are going to be cheering. Uh, people who are in, in short-term treasury bills are going to be cheering, but that's going to be a, a yield top in early December, but it's going to be a lot more painful for anybody wanting to get a mortgage than it is already right now uh, as yields continue up going into early December, and then they should pull back in the next year. But we don't have to trade next year's trade uh, right now. We get to worry about what's happening in front of us. It's interesting because fundamentally, the Treasury is going to be in the market from September to December. They're going to have to raise, Tom, close to $2 trillion of debt at a time uh, with the dollar strength, which could cause more selling. So that's interesting. So let's turn to something else that could affect what's going to happen. want to get your take here on oil. We're over $80 a barrel. Some are saying we could be by $90 a barrel by the end of the year. What do the charts tell you when you look at oil? I don't disagree with that. That sounds about right. Uh, oil had gotten a little bit overbought, and it too is pulling back. Oil uh, trades a lot like bond yields, except that oil sees its moves just about a week ahead of bond yields. So the peak that were, was due uh, in August for bond yields uh, was due a little bit earlier for oil prices, and oil prices should be pulling back. They are just a little bit, but by later this month of August, we should see a much bigger trend in oil prices heading up toward a peak due in about mid-November. So the peak in, in oil prices in mid-November will presage the peak in bond yields due in early December, um, and it's going to go a lot higher. So um, I'm not in them right now, but I would think that the oil field services and oil exploration stocks would be where you'd want to play a little bit later this month. When we get to that stock market bottom that's due next week, uh, sometime around the uh, 21st to 24th of August, I would be looking to get back in to uh, OIH, which is what I was in and sold out of. And I'm expecting a little bit of a dip on that. I'm not in it now, but I'm going to be to ride the next wave upward in oil prices. But 
don't get married to the idea that oil prices are going to grow to the sky forever. It's a rally and it's going to be a significant one and a painful one for motorists going between now and mid-November, but then oil prices are going to pull back into early 2024. All right, let's move on to gold because I've been following fund flows. Investors have divested themselves of gold from the large ETFs. I think it's something like 540 tons of gold. But contrary to that, central bank's largest central bank buying in history, almost 1,300 tons, and they're on track 1,400 tons this year. So what do you see in the gold charts? Well, I'm old enough to remember back when the Bank of England decided it was stupid to hold on to gold anymore. And so they were selling all of their gold holdings between 2001 and 2003 and uh, uh, pushed gold prices down below $300. And now the fashion is back to, to that central banks want to own gold. And so gold comes into and out of fashion like that pretty often. Gold has an important 13 and a half month cycle uh, in between important lows. And we're due for that major cycle low right now. The problem is that it can be plus or minus a month from the ideal due date for that cycle and still be within its normal boundaries for punctuality. It's not a particularly precise cycle bottom where you can count it to the day and the hour. It's like plus or minus a month. So somewhere around here in in middle of August, we are due for an important bottom in gold prices, and I'm expecting to see one. Uh, but we are still in a downtrend. It hasn't turned up yet, so I'm not ready to turn bullish on it yet, but I'm ready to be ready. And one of the articles that I'm just about to write for my chart and focus series is talking about how there is a really large discount in the share price of CEF. It used to be the Central Fund of Canada. Now it's the Sprott Physical Gold and Silver Trust. It's not an exchange traded fund. It's a special trust that holds gold and silver bullion but in relatively fixed amounts. And so um, unlike an ETF that can expand or contract its holdings and expand and contract its shares to meet demand, the, the shares of CEF are a trade at a, at a premium or a discount because they, they are relatively fixed. And right now that's trading at a 5% discount to its net asset value. And that t- says that people are so desperate to get out of this dog that they'll take even a 5% discount from what their shares are worth just to say, get me out, which is a bottoming condition for gold and silver prices. Now, I want to be precise, though, and say a condition is not the same as a signal. You can be at an oversold condition for a long time before it finally matters. It should matter, and I think it's going to matter, but it doesn't have to matter just because you or I happen to notice a oversold condition. So let's take this bottom, whether it's next week or, you know, the end of August or early September. Coming out of that, where could you see gold prices? Do we take out the old highs? It's possible. Um, I don't have good tools to say that that should happen or should not happen. But I can say that the last 13 and a half month cycle that we had just finished and we're looking for the next one to start, that one had a, a chart phenomenon known as right translation. And that's a fancy chartist term, meaning that the the higher high occurred late in the cycle. So the highs were moving upward. And, and that is a bullish signal for the next cycle. If it was in left translation, where the highest point came early in the cycle and was trending down, then that's a bearish sign. But we don't have that. So the last cycle was a bullish indication for the next one. However, that doesn't excuse us from undergoing the normal major cycle bottom, which is due right about now. So it foretells good things for the next cycle, especially in the first few months coming out of the major cycle bottom, which is due right now. So when you see the signs of an upturn, when your favorite 
trend following indicator, your MACD or price oscillator or whatever you like to watch shows you that we're breaking the John trend and turning up. It should be a really good period for gold for about three, two or two to four months because uh, those are when the biggest gains come during the ascending phase of the first few months of a new 13 and a half month cycle. So I'm very excited about the prospects for gold for the next few months once we get this bottom put in and once we get an upturn confirmed, which we have not got yet. All right, let's talk about gold's sister, silver. Silver, most of the time, does whatever gold does. It just does it more loudly. And so I like to say that gold is the dog, but silver is the tail of the dog. And so it wags around all over the place much more wildly. Um, it, it has not been pulling down as much as gold has been pulling down recently. Uh, and some people are drawing conclusions about that. I'm generally bullish on gold for the next few months once we get this bottom. And so I think that silver should go along for the ride. I don't have a different opinion about silver versus gold in that play because I think they're both going to head higher. And don't make me pick which horse is going to win the race. I think they're going to both race higher. All right. Well, listen, Tom, as we close, tell our listeners how they can find out more about the work that you do at MC Oscillator. Well, mcoscillator.com is our website. It's a contraction of the McClellan Oscillator that my parents created. Go to mcoscillator.com and you can see lots of free articles in our learning center. If you want the good stuff, you can get a subscription to our twice-monthly McClellan Market Report newsletter or a, a subscription to our daily edition that comes out every day the market trades. There's even free samples on the subscribe button on our, on our website to take a look at. You can see if it's something that you'd be interested in. And you can sign up for free to get our free weekly chart and focus article. No strings attached. We won't spam you. We don't sell our email list to anybody. It's just a way to get more people acquainted with the work that we do. All right. Well, listen, Tom, you have a great rest of the summer. I look forward to talking to you later this fall as we look at what happened to the market, oil, and gold. Until then, take care, my friend. Stay safe, Jim, and I hope that the Hurricane uh, Hurricane Hillary doesn't get you. Yeah, that's right. One of my clients alerted me, so you guys ready for a hurricane? I guess the hurricane hits uh, Southern California this weekend. The projections show that it's going to run into some cold water just off the coast of California, and that's going to suck all the energy out of it, but you still get a couple inches of rain. So stay safe. All right. Thanks, Tom. Take care. Dr. Alan D. Thompson is an AI expert and consultant who advises Fortune 500 companies and governments on the AI landscape. His website, lifearchitect.ai, is an absolute goldmine of coverage and analysis on this quickly evolving space. He also has a widely followed newsletter, called The Memo, which has become must-reading material, not only for those in the AI industry itself, but increasingly for a wide range of professionals in nearly every sector of the economy. And after today's interview, you will know why that is. Dr. Thompson, when we spoke with you last year, you had explained how AI is now smarter than the average human on a large range of tests. And when you look at it collectively, there's really no human on the face of the earth that can perform as well as AI is able to on all of these different areas of expertise. Where do things stand today on this front? Yeah, that's really shocking, isn't it? Last time we spoke, GPT-4 had just come out, uh, but we were still charting all the evaluations, all the benchmarks for what was actually possible. That model is still the largest model in the world, and it outperforms sommeliers, like wine tasting experts. It outperforms people on quantum maths or quantum physics exams. It outperforms us in so many spaces that is just 
incredibly confronting. People spend 10, 12, 20 years getting ready for these degrees or for the SAT and it's it's hitting in the 90th percentile. So we've come even further than that with uh, the release of Google's Palm 2 recently, which is hitting in the 90.2% in a test called Winogrand. And we were always waiting for a model to break that 90% mark. And it happened in May this year. It means that we're really, really close to having this concept of artificial general intelligence, maybe without the physical embodiment, where it can just do anything beyond the level of an expert human. To listen to this full interview, in addition to gaining access to all of our premium content airing during the week, go to financialsense.com and hit the subscribe button. At Financial Sense Wealth Management, we are committed to helping you build, maintain, and preserve your wealth. Contact us today to find out about our comprehensive financial planning and asset management services. Whether you're planning for retirement, taxes, putting together an estate plan, or need assistance in managing a 401k, Financial Sense Wealth Management is here to help. Give us a call to speak with one of our certified financial planners or wealth advisors at 888-486-3939 or go to financialsense.com and hit where it says contact us. Advisory services offered through Financial Sense Advisors, Inc., a registered investment advisor. Securities offered through Financial Sense Securities, Inc., member FINRA SIPC. Both companies doing business as Financial Sense Wealth Management. The price of energy has been rising over the last couple of months. It's pulled back a little bit at $80 a barrel, but many are predicting we could be heading to 90 and possibly 100. Let's find out where we're heading. Joining us on the program is Robert Rapier. He's senior energy writer for Forbes and Investors Daily. Robert, you and I were talking just before we went on the air about the BP Statistical Review, which is very comprehensive. It just came out. I wonder if you might highlight some key points of this report for our listeners. Right. So one thing, it's not BPs anymore. So after 70 years or so, they have decided they're not going to publish it anymore. So they've passed it off to the Energy Institute. So that long, long tradition just came to an end. But the format's the same. It looks the same. And so a lot of readers won't notice any difference. But BP said, hey, we're going to focus on converting to green energy. That's what they said. Our CEO is going to focus more on energy transition. And so we're not going to publish that anymore. Robert, what stood out for you reading it this year? Because, I mean, a couple of things I want to point out. We're told that we've reached peak demand, that demand for energy is going to go down. I don't see that. But anyway, we've been told about that. We've been told by, you know, 2030, we're going to have this glorious transition to a green economy. I don't see that happening either. But what is the statistical review? What stood out that would support any of these ideas or refute them? Well, so we actually, we're definitely not at peak demand. We set a new energy demand record globally in 2022. So it was a little slower than 2021 when we bounced back from COVID. But, you know, the world used more energy last year than we've ever used. Fossil fuels still maintain an 82% share of primary energy consumption. And that's down from 87% in 2010. But just to put that in perspective, at that rate, 87 in 2010 to 82 today, it would take us nearly 200 years to get off fossil fuels at that rate. So very, very slow decline. You know, renewables are growing at very, very fast rates, but they're growing from a low base. 
And, you know, renewables like uh, wind and solar are still only responsible for seven and a half percent of global energy consumption. And, you know, again, fossil fuels at 82 percent. We set all kinds of new demands. Global coal demand grew again to the highest level since 2014. So it's been on the rise. That was last year's growth rate was triple the 10 year average growth. And it was driven by demand in China and India. And that translates into record carbon dioxide emissions. And when we talk about trying to rein in carbon dioxide emissions, it's helpful to look at the chart of where carbon emissions are coming from. I mean, the U.S. and the EU are really just a blip on the world's carbon emissions. Now, historically, it is true that historically the U.S. has put more carbon in the air than any other country. But that's not going to be true for much longer because China is rapidly catching us, Asia Pacific overall. I mean, Asia Pacific has about three times the combined carbon dioxide emissions of the EU and the United States, about triple our combined emissions. And there's growing rapidly year after year. And the U.S. and the EU have flattened out. I mean, we've got about the same consumption that we had 40 years ago. We really haven't changed a lot since then. And in 40 years, their emissions have more than quadrupled. So, you know, that's the big problem. And when people talk about trying to rein in emissions, if they don't recognize that, you know, you've got a whole, whole lot of people who admittedly have a lower per capita consumption than we do. China's per capita consumption is half of ours, but, you know, they've got four times as many people. So their overall emissions as a country are far greater than ours. And somehow that has to be reined in if we're really going to get control over that. We keep hearing from, you know, either the president or a lot of the environmentalists that, you know, we're on this collision course on climate change. And, you know, some say that 10 years from now, we'll all be dead if we don't do something. But how can they proceed with this when you got the biggest polluters, half of the world's population that don't subscribe to this? Yeah, I mean, it's not a problem. I've said it before and people, I mean, climate activists get mad when I say this, but it's not a problem the U.S. can fix. It's a problem that we have to engage Asia. And I mean, the only thing, I mean, there's only a couple of things that the U.S. could do. I mean, we can invent technologies that Asia could adopt to reduce their emissions. Or, you know, if we just suck the CO2 out of the air. But otherwise, our emissions are just so low relative to theirs. There's not a lot that we can do here. But we do have to engage them. We do have to get on board and we have to lead on this issue. But our hands are tied as long as they continue to develop, especially as they continue to develop on coal. All right. So outside that there was record demand for energy. So this idea that we've reached peak demand, that falls short of that. Anything else stand out in terms of you mentioned record coal consumption? Anything else? Yeah, I mean. The U.S. remained the world's leading producer of oil. We remained the world's leading producer of uh, natural gas. And, you know, China leads by far on coal. That leads me to an ad that Mike Pence just put out talking about how the U.S. was going to regain the top spot as the world's greatest energy producer. And I criticize that ad because it's pretty misleading. The only reason China leads us for overall energy production is because of their massive, massive coal production. If you look at it, we produce four times as much oil, four times as much natural gas. We produce far more nuclear power. So in the categories that are really important, we lead China or, you know, in renewables, they've surpassed us a little bit, but and, and they're growing a lot faster. But the only reason they're there is because they produce 10 times as much coal as we do. And we're not going to catch China, you know, unless they roll down their coal consumption. I mean, production and 
we ramp ours up. You know, I think that was really misleading of Mike Pence because we do lead where it matters. We lead in oil, we lead in natural gas, we lead in nuclear power, we're close to the lead in renewables. And I don't think, you know, we want to be the world's top coal producer, especially, you know, when the world's trying to rein in carbon emissions. So, you know, the U.S., you know, overall, I'd say the U.S. is the leading energy producer, but technically it's China just because of their massive, massive coal. You know, oil demand grew uh, robustly last year, 3.1% increase over 2022. That was well ahead of the 10-year average growth, and that's still due to ongoing post-COVID recovery. If we get a little bit more granular, and, and this will surprise a lot of people, I made this prediction at the beginning of the year. I said, this year, the U.S. will produce more oil than we have ever produced in the history of this country. And through eight months of the year, that's correct. We are on target to set a new oil production record. And, you know, you wouldn't think this because, you know, Biden hasn't been very friendly to the oil and gas industry. And I use this to point out to people, this just goes to show the price signal is far more important than what a president can do. A president just doesn't impact the oil markets in the short term that much. And the classic example I always use is Bush and Obama. You know, Bush was an oil man and oil production declined all eight years he was in office. But fracking was being developed. And then when Obama came into office, fracking started to pay dividends. And we saw the largest expansion of oil production in U.S. history. And that just goes to show, you know, Obama wasn't friendly to the oil industry, yet he presided over the largest expansion of oil production in history. So, you know, the price signal is far, far more important in the short term, especially than what a president is doing. We're moving to this green transition. Uh, Biden just gave a speech. He just took off a large swath of land that has uranium. So we want to make this green transition. Before that, we need cobalt, we need lithium, we need nickel, we need copper, we even need silver. Robert, how are we doing that where every time, you know, he shut down a copper mine in Arizona, a large swath of cobalt and minerals in Minnesota, lithium in uh, Maine, which was shut down by their own legislature for strip mining. How are we going to make this transition to green when we're not allowed to produce the minerals? It takes raw materials to do green. We have them, but we can't use them, which makes us dependent on Russians and the Chinese for this. How does that work? Right. So I've said before that the last thing we want to do is exchange dependence on foreign oil for dependence on foreign lithium. And that's where we're headed. You know, we've got some lithium resources, but, you know, South America, Bolivia, you know, those countries there, they've got most of the world's lithium reserves. And, you know, the the danger is if we're not trying to develop our own that I wrote an article a couple of years ago about OPEC and maybe the analog to that could be OLEC, the Organization of Lithium Exporting Countries. And I think that's probably where they're headed. Those countries can have a monopoly on lithium and they can, you know, really control the price. And that's going to hurt the U.S. if we're not out there trying to develop I understand that mining is a messy business and people don't like mining in their backyard, but you know, there is no free lunch here. If you don't want mining in your backyard, you're going to push it somewhere else and they're going to control the pricing and they're going to control the market. And sometimes they may embargo you and and hurt your economy. So yeah, you're right. We've got to look at all of these things, all the minerals that we need. And we've got to make sure we've got either our own supplies or supplies from a very reliable ally like Canada or somebody like that. So as we talk about this, going to green, it's not just the raw materials that we're going to need to make EVs and windmills, 
solar panels. But Robert, what about the grid? We're destabilizing the grid. And California is a prime example. New York, we're seeing it in Michigan, where a lot of these states are shutting down nuclear power plants, gas plants, coal plants, and they're replacing them with wind and solar, which is intermittent. It's making the grid more reliable. So you hear story after story. Michigan just had a power out. So you're seeing it more and more. And all the politicians say, well, it's climate change. They don't talk about the unreliability that we're transitioning to in this green economy with what we're doing with the grid. Right. And I was at the very tip of the spear on this issue. I I saw this. I lived in Hawaii a decade ago, and Hawaii was ahead of every other state in solar power. And Hawaii Electric was warning people that it was causing the grid to become more and more unreliable. And a lot of people said, oh, that's just them saying that, you know, they because they it's competition and they want to sell expensive power. And I talked to Hawaii Electric executives And they assured me that, no, uh, when you have these micro fluctuations, it can really upset the grid. And over time, there are resolutions and there are things that can make that better. But we really aren't quite there yet with energy storage where you have wide scale, like huge battery storage that could balance out those fluctuations a little bit. The grid is really an overlooked piece of the whole transition, because if you imagine, you know, all the cars that are running on gasoline right now, converting over to electricity, that's a massive increase in electricity demand. And it's going to change the patterns of the day where electricity demand occurs. And, you know, there's a lot of grid upgrades. There's a lot of money that needs to be invested to do that. And so... You know, as you mentioned, what we seem to be doing, uh, we're becoming the largest or the largest producers of energy. Who would have thought that a decade ago? But now we are seeing China and some South American countries uh, develop almost like a monopoly-like hold on these raw materials that you need for this green transition, whether it's lithium, whether it's cobalt, rare earth minerals. So we're exchanging one OPEC for another. That just doesn't make sense to me. Right. And China already has the, they've got the market cornered on lithium batteries already. You know, I know some people in the lithium battery space and, you know, there's a company in California called One Charge, and I talked to them a lot and they said, you know, we would love to buy American lithium batteries and we just can't. They don't exist. So we have to get them from China. There's no other supplier. And, you know, I think we probably need to make a major investment here to avoid. I think, you know, it's bad enough being dependent on, you know, Saudi Arabia or Venezuela for oil imports, which we were for many years. I don't think we want to be dependent on China for lithium. I and mean, it's not good. I and mean, we've seen that with Venezuela and oil. It's not good to be dependent on an adversary for a critical material like that. So when does this really start to impact consumers? I mean, California, we have the highest utility rates in the country. Our gasoline is probably one of the highest. It's one of the reasons I got an EV. But, you know, I have solar panels on my home, so I can charge my own car. But if you want to charge your EV in California, Robert, it's more expensive to charge your EV than it is to buy gasoline. Yeah. And, you know, California is a little bit of a special situation. It's not like that everywhere, but California does lead the country in EV adoption rates. And, you know, you would think if EVs were really cutting into gasoline consumption, you'd see lower gasoline prices there in California. And I always point people back to Norway as the test case because Norway had the fastest adoption of EVs in the world. And they've got something like over 80% now of the vehicles sold over there are EVs. So if you want to peek at the future, 
look at Norway. And so this morning I pulled up the statistical review and I looked at Norway's oil consumption. And it has been pretty steady for the last 15 years or so. And it's only started to drop off a little bit in the last three or four years. And right now, it's only down about 15% from the peak. Now, keep in mind that almost all the cars sold over there are EVs now, and they're still within 15% of the all-time peak of their oil consumption. And to put that in perspective, if the U.S. was 15% off the peak, we'd still be consuming over 16 million barrels a day of oil. So we're, And we're nowhere close to Norway's EV adoption rates. And this is why I tell people, when people think that EVs are going to rapidly get oil out of the equation, I say, look at Norway and look at our EV adoption rates, and you tell me the math on that, because I don't see how that's possible. All these gasoline cars that are on the road now, they're going to have a lifetime. They're going to be on the road still for you know many years, and we're just not going to see oil phase out as quickly as they think. And that's why we've got to continue to make sure that we've got good access to oil supplies. And in the meantime, we need to start thinking about strengthening the grid, because if they've got these mandates, my own state of California, no diesel trucks after 2030. No gasoline engines after 2035. Other states are adopting the California timetable and agenda as well. We better start doing something quick or we're going to start seeing what we are seeing today, which is more brownouts around the country. Yeah. And they're doing stuff and there are plans. But, you know, when demand starts to get ahead of the ability to keep up with it, then you start to run into those kinds of problems. And, you know, back to oil, which I always like to go back to, like the Keystone Pipeline, for example. You know, I understand why environmentalists wanted to shut that down because they reasoned, hey, if we shut it down, we won't use that oil. But in fact, what happens is you shut it down. Now you don't have the oil supplies and demand doesn't go down as fast as you thought it was. And now you have a situation where oil prices are spiking because now we're having to get oil from Saudi Arabia and Venezuela that we could have gotten from Canada, you know, at a lower price and a more stable place. And, you know, that's the risk when you shut down your access to energy or you don't ramp it up as fast as the demand actually ramps up, then you run into those kinds of problems. So, Robert, as we close here, what would you be doing given the situation we're talking about? With record demand for oil. We've got record demand for raw materials. I don't care if it's copper, it's lithium, cobalt, nickel, all the base metals, but they're not doing well because everybody's concerned about China, even though demand keeps rising. You know, you have to pick your entry points here. You know, a couple of months ago in one of my newsletters, I recommended Valero, options on Valero, actually. And in the past couple of months, Valero was up like 40%. And I would wouldn't recommend Valero today because I think it came up too fast, too quickly. And I actually recommend people close that position out this week. And so gasoline prices are rising. So a refiner is going to do well when gasoline prices are rising. But I think that's priced in already to the refiners. And, and the oil companies have, have shot up. You know, I recommend ConocoPhillips three or four months ago, and it shot up really nicely. But the bargains aren't there as much. You know, the midstreams always lag and the midstreams haven't shot up as much as the oil companies and the refiners. And so you might find a little more value there, but they just never, they're not as volatile. So you don't get as big a returns there, but you get steadier returns over time. So I would advise people, you know, just pick your entry points. It's hard to buy when things are falling, but you know, if oil prices pull back, gasoline prices pull back, I'd start to look at the refiners again. You know, Valero came up close. To, I think I added about $100 and it was up about 140 last week. It's pulling back today. But if oil prices pull back, you know, as you see Valero pull back to, you know, 110, 120, then I'd think about adding some refiners. ConocoPhillips the same way. 
you know, Chevron, uh, Shell, you know, those guys, if you see a pullback, I would add to them. You know, they've been the top performers in uh, 2001, 2002. Oil companies were and energy companies were. And they've underperformed this year, which was another prediction I made, that they would underperform this year relative to the overall market. But in the past two or three months, they've started to outperform. And they've been the top performing sector just over the past couple of months. So, But I would pick your entry points. Right now, things are hot. I would wait and try to pick a good entry point on a pullback. All right, Robert, if our listeners would like to follow you, I know you write for Forbes and Investors Business Daily. Is that the best place? Yeah, it's Investing Daily, by the way. So it's, Investors Business Daily is a different publication. but and, and I think they may have republished some of my stuff before as well. So I'm a senior energy contributor at Forbes. You can Google my name and you can find me there. And then Investing Daily, I write several publications for them. One is called Utility Forecaster. And it's not just utilities. We have a lot of energy companies in those portfolios. I cover income sectors. And then I have a publication called Income Accelerator, which we always pair our shares with calls. So it's a covered call and a cash covered put publication. And we have outperformed the S&P 500 consistently since that publication opened. And as I said, we just closed out Valero for you know, something like a 30%, 40% annual return in just a couple of months. So, uh, you know, we've got some good trades there. So, you know, you can find me pretty easily. Google my name and either of those publications and you'll find me. All right, Robert, as always, thanks for joining us on the program. Have a great rest of the summer. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888, that's 888-486-3939, or go to financialsense.com and click where it says Contact Us. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. The Financial Sense NewsHour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the NewsHour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies mentioned in Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk.